Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett. Today on the Roundup, we're going to be taking a look at three topics we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. Uh, this week, we're coming out of the Education USA Forum last week in Washington, D.C. Always a good time to reconnect with with colleagues, particularly since this conference, like most other international ed conferences, haven't met since 2019. Uh, the this is kind of the last of the summer run of international ed uh, conferences from NAFSA to International ACAC and now the EdUSA Forum in DC last week. Uh, we're, a couple of the issues we'll be talking about will be coming directly from that conversation in, in DC, the first of which we'll get to in a minute. But as we do each week, we take the questions we ask on the midweek roundup from our uh, newsletter that comes out on Monday mornings. And I'll be sharing that, uh, that newsletter with you in just a second here. Uh, the link to that newsletter, there's uh, th a couple different ways you can subscribe. You can do that either through our website at smieconsulting.org. And I'm going to drop the link uh, for that into the chat as well. Uh, that's uh, SMIE consulting.org slash subscribe. Uh, I'm going to drop the link to the most recent edition uh, where you can uh, see the news stories that we're going to be talking about today, uh, some of them uh, at least. Uh, we'll also be dropping in the link to the LinkedIn version of the newsletter. So if you prefer to uh, get your news through LinkedIn when it comes to international education, uh, you can certainly more than welcome to subscribe to both of both or one or both of those. Uh, you'll get the news in your inbox either on your LinkedIn notifications or in your email by 9 a.m. every Monday morning. Uh, that's Eastern Time. So uh, do uh, make sure to subscribe to one or both of those uh, newsletter options. And well, today we're going to be getting into uh, some of those topics that have come across, uh, come out of the forum. Uh, it's always a great conversation uh, during the Education USA forum with uh, a, a really unique opportunity because you never have in one spot all of the regional coordinators uh, for the Education USA network. There anywhere depending on, on uh, travel restrictions and positions being filled between 12 and 14 uh, REACTs potentially at this conference. <clears throat> uh, there was at least one REACT that couldn't make it uh, for, uh, due to travel restrictions, but uh, and one position, one or two positions that are still being filled uh, or considering being filled. We're not sure what's happening yet with a couple of the European REACT positions. But anyway, uh, so we're seeing uh, the EdUSA Forum always as a welcome opportunity to gather together. This year, like the, many of the international ed conferences this summer, uh, NAFSA had 40% of its attendees being first-timers. International ACAC was about 50%. And I don't have the official numbers from the EdUSA Forum, uh, but uh, it was likely 50% or, or more. Uh, we're seeing a lot of newer faces. Uh, and that may be just because I'm getting a bit older in the profession, uh, but seeing a lot of new faces in, in institutions that have been attending for years. Maybe they're sending you junior staff, or maybe they are the new staff. Uh, so it's, it's kind of hard to get a sense of that until the data is actually released. But uh, the numbers were down, as they were at NAFSA, as they were at International ACAC for in-person attendance. Uh, they usually have about 500 U.S. reps, uh, but now they had, uh, I think this year, about 350 max. 
Now there were some that were joined online for a few of the uh, opening day sessions, but the majority of in-person, uh, the numbers were down and have been across the board at international conferences this summer. So no surprises there, kind of following, following along those trend lines. But I did want to talk about this first question, and this is one that has actually this time last year when the EdUSA forum uh, announced virtually uh, in 2021 uh, a joint statement on principles in support of international education. Now, this, uh, this was a new, uh, a really exciting time, I think, for a lot of international educators to see what many have called the most significant international education statement released by an administration since uh, April of 2020 or April of 2000, uh, so 22 years ago, uh, 21 at the time. But 20, in April of 2020, uh, President Clinton commissioned uh, President, uh, Vice President Gore at the time uh, the, uh, to work on an international education strategy. Never really amounted to much because they were voted out of office that following no, that November. But uh, one of the concrete results of that statement in April of, 20, of 2000 uh, resulted in International Education Week, which is celebrated to this day uh, across college campuses, at embassies and consulates abroad, and is a real signature piece of State Department's uh, um, public diplomacy initiatives to spread the value of uh, international education around the world and here in the United States. So to have last summer uh, this joint statement uh, on National on international in support of international education really um, raised the profile for for a time among in the certainly in the higher ed press it certainly got a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of articles came out in the subsequent weeks made it into foreign affairs and a few other uh, non higher ed press uh, destinations but uh, there was at the time a lot of enthusiasm and maybe cautious optimism. And much like we, we are cautiously optimistic that we're getting back to normal post-pandemic in terms of student news returning, returning and new international students coming to the United States this fall, I think everybody would say we're cautiously optimistic and probably more, uh, more reason for optimism there. Uh, but with regard to uh, this statement last year, the, the question a lot of us in, that have been in the field all, a while are asking, okay, is this, is this going anywhere? Is this going to amount to a, a, a national, international ed strategy? Uh, something that and most of us who've been in the profession for more than a minute realize that is something we're sorely lacking in the United States, where we have governments around the world, uh, mostly Western countries, uh, that have very coordinated national approaches, have three-year plans, have seven-year plans, have 10-year plans uh, for international education. That's also very closely tied to their immigration policies and as it is in Canada. So we see a lot, a lot of, uh, in other countries, a lot of uh, discussion around national strategies. In the UK, for example, they have a, an international education champion that's part of uh, the prime minister's cabinet. Uh, if not the cap, uh, inner circle, but certainly on the cabinet team or sub-cabinet team, there is, frankly, momentum and uh, everybody's on the same page in a lot of these countries. Part of that has to do with they're dealing with smaller number of institutions. Uh, in the UK, it's 150 universities and, and then voc tech sector. In Canada, it's about 100 universities uh, and voc tech, uh, larger voc tech sector. Australia, 
40 universities or less, and then a larger uh, Voctech sector. Uh, New Zealand only eight, eight universities and a, a larger Voctech sector. So anyway, in most countries, they have national strategies. We don't and, and never have in the United States. So last summer really raised the bar in terms of, oh my goodness, we might actually be moving somewhere in a positive direction. And what has happened since? So there was a session at the uh, forum that was joint uh, joint statement on international education one year on. So that was the title of the session. A lot of senior folks in the field were attending that uh, that session and uh, uh, really were hoping to hear some real game-changing announcements of what's coming down the pike or what's been done. What we did here is uh, we had did have four representatives from the four uh, departments, federal, federal government departments, states, commerce, education, and homeland security, all part of this panel, which was great. Uh, good to see representation across those, those, uh, those units that have their hands in a piece of the international ed pie. We've got commerce and their focus on uh, being edu edu international education, being an export industry and sixth largest export industry for the United States. And very much concerned on the dollars and cents of what international education brings to the U.S. as a, as a, as a dr economic driver. You have uh, Department of Homeland Security that's very much concerned about the national security implications of bringing students in and they regulate and have the rules and regulations that impact what they can and can't do once they're in the United States. Then you have the State Department that is um, very much focused on public diplomacy and uh, having these students come here, have great experiences, go home and become uh, leaders in their home countries and then have positive impact on uh, U.S. Uh, relationships with other countries around the world. So that public diplomacy kind of piece. And then you have the Department of Education, which is concerned about uh, raising the profile of uh, uh, raising global education, uh, raising access to international education for U.S. students in terms of access to international students and study abroad opportunities, all of that. Uh, so there's their focus, which probably more, more closely aligns with what we in the profession in international ed kind of see as one of our main drivers. So if I had to rank them, I would say educate, Department of Education, Department of State, Department of Commerce and Homeland Security in terms of how aligned or not they are with what we, we in, interna in international higher ed believe as reasons why international students come to the U.S. So that's the, that's the fundamental niche or gist of this session. Uh, each of the four departments spent time talking about what they've done since. Uh, education was talking about a couple of bilateral agreements they've uh, reached with different countries for career and vocational education. That's all, all, all important, uh, important stuff there, uh, but limited. Uh, we see Department of Homeland Security uh, focusing on getting their field reps back up to full, full, full employment. So they're down, I think, six or seven uh, field reps around the, uh, around the U.S. in terms of those that meet, go meet with the university reps directly. You have, um, they also, one thing that they've done successfully at Homeland Security is uh, uh, added 22 new STEM majors that are uh, STEM SIP codes to the approved list. Uh, and also created a new process where annually institutions will have the ability to submit their own programs that aren't necessarily represented yet in those SIP codes that could be and should be potentially STEM, uh, STEM designated programs. So that was a positive. Then uh, you had Commerce that talked about what they've been doing with uh, 
uh, USA a study destination, their campaign that initially started in 2019 is kind of a way to align all the state consortia uh, that exist around the country uh, under uh, this USA a study destination uh, umbrella and then started doing some uh, marketing campaigns and videos, commission videos for different states. They've only done a, ha a handful from what I've, what I've been able to see, but certainly have not seen, seen a, lot of, a lot of that. Um, but they have the one big thing that they've developed is this new uh, international education export strategy. Uh, and they've never had that before uh, in International Trade Association within commerce in the commercial service. So that uh, National Trade Administration, not Association. So Commerce has that piece going for it. State has to, uh, focused on what they're doing is study with U.S. or study with us. That is the hashtag for their campaign. So they've commissioned IIE uh, to work with a marketing partner to develop the videos. A series of videos are coming out. Uh, the campaign actually started last year, but they released a new video to the uh, at the EDUSA forum uh, using current students, focusing on on flexibility of uh, of, of, of ac academics in U.S. higher ed. So that's great, uh, but they are, none of these are connected. Oh, they have their uh, they have their joint meetings, their interagency meetings. Uh, they are kind of all independent, operate operating independently because there's no kind of leadership here. Uh, they were told to here, do this joint statement. Uh, education and state kind of led the charge last July, and then Commerce and, and DHS came on board. Uh, there's also other partners, other departments that maybe should be at the table, too, if we're talking about the impact of what an international ed strategy should be, and that would be Department of Labor. Um, so the question really here, and I'm going to spend most of my time talking about this today because it really, coming away from the forum, this was my biggest disappointment, uh, that... I got the chance to answer questions uh, about where's the beef, basically. What is, I uh, wrote an article about it on, a, on, my, um, on, a, on the SMIE consulting site. I've dropped the link to that article in the, um, in the chat. I also reposted it on LinkedIn. Got some really positive feedback from those who were, that read the article, those that were attending, uh, on how my points really uh, reflected their feelings as well. And what this really is, is a frustration that you have these four federal departments all doing their own thing. They're having interagency meetings, they are, um, but they're not addressing, they're doing what they can, and I'm not faulting them in any way, because uh, I, I respect what they do. I've worked with Education USA and State Department in the past uh, for, for my job for six and a half years, so I know the value there. I've worked on the state consortia side. I know the role that Commerce plays in helping them get up and running, so there's value there. DHS has certain restrictions there. Uh, that we don't need to talk about here, but uh, they uh, there's some fundamental challenges in so many departments that have an element of 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 what impacts international education in their mission, but not a sole focus. They're all operating independently, doing what they can within their own spheres of influence. Uh, the challenges, none of the things that can really move the needle for the United States as a country can happen until we have national leadership, until we have um, a cabinet level, I, I said international, czar, international ed czar to one of the panelists after the session was over, uh, but I asked them, frankly, where are the game changers? Where are the, 
the two of the two of the two of the proposals that did the Biden administration did put into uh, their initial initial Build Back Better proposal right after they took took office uh, or inaugurated in, uh, beginning of 2021. Uh, it's provisions to uh, provide green cards to all international STEM graduate PhD students uh, to once they finish to uh, um, make the change for. F1 to become a dual intent status instead of just non-immigrant. And then one that I've, I've, I've been talking about recently is uh, what are we going to do when we go back to normal uh, when it comes to classes that international students can take? Uh, right now, uh, the regulations as they stand, if we were to go back to normal today, limit students to one online course per term. Uh, we know the pandemic has fundamentally changed the way courses are, are taught on many college campuses. Large lecture halls are almost a thing of the past. They're going to be taught online and then students will have lab sections, discussion sections, whatever, in smaller discussion groups. Uh, so we're seeing entire degrees now shift online. So the campus experience is changing, the way courses are delivered is changing, but the regulations haven't changed and they need to catch up. We've had these exemptions put in, put on the books for the last two years uh, for obviously the end of the 1920 academic year, all of the 2021 academic year, all of the 21-22 academic year, and now for the 22-23 academic year. We now have this exemption that international students are covered uh, that are enrolled uh, in at least one in-person class uh, can be uh, on campus in the United States, uh, can be legally on their college campus. But that's until that gets made permanent, until we get the changes on F1 becoming a dual attempt status, until we get the changes to things like uh, STEM PhDs getting green cards, until those that would be truly game changers in the global perspective on international student mobility, until that happens, we are just doing our own thing, Every, everybody's kind of, uh, every department's doing their own thing, colleges and universities are tooting their own horns, and really we don't have anything that unifies us other than we need to be promoting the U.S. as a destination because of uh, breadth of uh, diversity of our, of our student, uh, of, uh, of our, our educational institutions, the flexibility that students have in their academic programs, the diversity of uh, uh, our student bodies and the opportunity to meet students from around the world. The um, the, the quality of the education that you see consistently in rankings and, and not only in the United States but globally as well and the outcomes as well in terms of opportunities for work permission post-study work is going to be is are things that we can and should be touting to prospective students at all times at all points in the admissions funnel but we don't really get that opportunity to do that if we're only talking about our own institutions and this is the piece that I think when I when I talk about uh, international, how, when I talk with particularly university clients, uh, but on, even on campuses I'm working on, uh, how much we are missing the boat if we're not talking about U.S. as a, the benefits of studying in the U.S. first, then benefits of our institution. Because the realization, as I've mentioned many times when we talk about perspective, is that the students that we're recruiting from overseas are more than likely applying to multiple countries 
when uh, they're also applying to you. They're not necessarily just applying to your domestic competition because likelihood of a of an international student applying to you as uh, your top private university in your state and then your, uh, one of your major domestic competitors for those same students, uh, it's, 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 it's it maybe a larger public university in a different state. It may be institutions in the UK, Canada, and Australia you're competing against. So these are the things that we very rarely focus on in, in our jobs. In, in terms of how we promote ourselves and how we promote ourselves not only as an institution but as a country because we need to be doing more of that. And that's, again, it's, again, it's part of our decentralized nature. And when I asked the question what are the, what, what, after the session, I said, what's the end result of this joint print statement? Are we just going to be you guys doing your own things in your different departments? Or are we going to be uh, going to have an international ed strategy? And no one really had an answer for it. Uh, and they kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, don't know. How about an international ed czar? Maybe we don't want to call it a czar anymore because of what we're dealing with Russia. Maybe we call it like what they do in the UK, an international ed champion. So until we get that cabinet level source person at the top that can coordinate activities amongst these four, four and potentially five federal level departments and actively be pushing an agenda in Congress that reflects the kind of game-changing things we need to be doing that Canada's done for years, that the UK's done, that Australia has done, New Zealand has done. Until we get to that point, we will never have an international ed strategy. It just won't happen. It's physically not a possibility because it's not going to be able to be a ground up because uh, all the higher ed associations have been advocating the kinds of things we want for years, uh, but they never seem to get the traction. We're, it was great to see some of those things included in legislation, but the full weight of the government never gets put behind it uh, to make them realities. We all know immigration, immigration reform is overdue in, this, in the country, but we're never going to see it. So the connected pieces to this. So no, I don't think we're going to ever have an international ed strategy until we get serious and have a top level, cabinet level person that's 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 helps to direct traffic and helps to lead the charge. Because as much as we think we're doing good at our own institutions, the advocacy work we do with our individual representatives, that only moves the needle so far. It's got to come from the top if it's going to really impact what happens uh, on a national and international stage. So the, one of the most important related topics to this, and until the connection is made for at the highest levels of government, that the ability to study after graduation uh, is one of the biggest drivers. We've, we, we know that, particularly during the pandemic, ROI is a bigger thing for, for students, particularly at the undergrad level where parents are making the financial decisions for students and committing the, rev, the money to allow their dreams to happen in the U.S. This question of how important is post-study work, it has to be at or near the top of what you focus on in your recruitment pitches. And this is why you need to be connecting all the dots on your campus, student international campus journey on your campus from prospect to successful alumni. And focus on those last pieces of career services and alumni offices and make sure 
that they have tailored services for international students. Make sure that they are tracking uh, where your international students are getting jobs. Make sure they're making it easier for international students to find where those options are when they have job fairs on campus and who comes for interviews. If you have job board postings on your site that you have asterisks or something next to each of the listings that says companies will hire international students. If you don't, then you're just considering international students as any other student, that you're not dealing specifically with their needs. And I'm fortunate to work at an institution now that has recognized this amongst many other needs, that there are, not every student is the same, and there are very there are the various groups of students that have very different needs. First-gen students have very different needs than, uh, than an international student, have very different needs than uh, uh, someone who's coming from a well-to-do background and where the, uh, their entire family uh, has gone to college for generations. There are ver simply very different needs to different student groups have. And until your career services offices is recognizing this and international students is having very different needs and helping to provide services that will help them maximize their post-study work opportunities, whether the, through the OPT, whether through going home and uh, getting recognition for their de your degree in, your, in their home country, that is absolutely essential in terms of how you market to prospective students, not just how you handle it on the back end. You have to do that well on the back end in order to be able to market it well. You need to have the success stories. You need to have hopefully data that can back up why stu how students are able to uh, that show that international students that come to your campus will succeed. So it's a, a really a, a daunting task and frankly one that most uh, international offices, recruitment offices, don't spend a whole lot of bandwidth thinking about, but it needs to be an essential component of what you do moving forward because you, you see pathway providers focusing on that, on career services for, for students that are coming into, into their university programs. You find agents that are also beginning to add these services for returning students that might be coming home. You see uh, some institutional partnership programs uh, that we're working with uh, that are now adding in these uh, career services uh, pieces to the puzzle because they recognize it's a full journey. It's not just getting them in the door somewhere. You need to make sure these students are taken care of all the way through the journey and in particular that end product uh, with post-study work opportunities. So that's a, kind of a quick answer to question three. We could spend a whole session just on that topic. But I do want to spend a last, um, last few, two or three minutes that we have here with you talking about what's going on with um, with international uh, or intensive English programs and uh, visa delays. We all know that uh, the IP sector is one of those that has probably seen uh, the most significant downward turns uh, in international aid in the last uh, two and a half years. Uh, you see, um, we, we've certainly felt it in the United States. Two recent articles from uh, from uh, ISF Monitor uh, on Australia and Canada's situations respectively, show, uh, talking about the significant downturns they've experienced during the pandemic. You also see uh, what's, um, what's been happening uh, since then in terms of they're their looking to bounce back. But part of the problem in terms of the bounce back is the significant visa delays that are happening. Uh, you see that uh, most uh, acutely in Canada, uh, where they're now, uh, they're, they now are seeing demand that is, uh, supersedes what they had pre-pandemic. 
which was already fairly high. Uh, you also see in the UK, uh, their processing time is has typically been uh, three weeks uh, for visas. That's what they're telling students now. But the reality is uh, it's more like a month. So it's an extra week, which frankly, if we're looking at it from the US perspective, uh, I just saw a study internet or a Voice of America news article uh, that said the visa visa backlogs are at the worst point since post 9-11. And those were some pretty serious backlogs that were driven largely by um, largely by this uh, administrative processing that uh, basically the euphemism for any male Muslim student uh, that was applying for a visa had months of um, background checks through every criminal database in the world basically before they were even uh, allowed to have uh, to get their visa. So the visa issuances that backlogs that Canada and the UK are feeling, we're feeling it here in the United States. Uh, some countries where you, you can't get an appointment for a year uh, and the advice from the State Department folks this past week was, yeah, go apply for that appointment, uh, get, set the appointment first and then apply for emergency, uh, emergency, emer an emergency appointment. So that was the advice we got at the forum last week. So even though it says no appointments till May uh, and they want to start in August, tell them to still apply and then apply for emergency visa appointments, which can happen. Uh, as early as 60 days before a program start date or as late as 30 days. So depending on the country and it will vary slightly depending on uh, the host nation So and what the post says. So do, do make sure that, yeah, there are visa challenges uh, worldwide. It's not just in the United States, uh, Canada and uh, the UK especially. Australia is probably not seeing uh, as, 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 well, they, they have had, certainly had delays with returning students. Uh, those have uh, freed up mostly in the last couple of months as they've been open now for uh, for two or three months uh, since Washington, March or April. But uh, New Zealand just opened in, in, on August 1st, so I will see if they if they get the demand back up. Uh, we're not sure yet. It doesn't seem like it's going to be, it's going to take a lot longer for New Zealand to rebound uh, because they, they stayed closed almost the longest. Uh, China's still closed, even though they say they're opening up. So we'll we'll see, but there's a lot a lot of moving parts as there is every time we uh, we talk about visa issues and uh, in intensive English programs uh, certainly under a lot of challenges. But I do want to thank you all for taking the time, uh, either watching live or or catching us on repeats uh, on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. I appreciate you being a part of the journey on the midweek roundup, and we look forward to catching up next week. So have a great day and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Cheers.